that you would open my mouth, illumine me, spirit divine. Lord, that is our prayer, that you would open our ears, the ears of our soul, to be able to hear how your word speaks to our life, challenges us. Lord, may your spirit illumine us. We, your servants, are listening. Speak, Lord Jesus, speak. It's in your name we pray, the guiding name of Christ. Amen. I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to James chapter 1 this morning. James chapter 1, verses 1, excuse me, verses 2 through 4. When the going gets tough, the tough gets I want us to think about what occurs when times get tough in life. I want us to think about those testing times of life, those times of trials, those times of difficulty. What happens when things get tough in your life? I thought about it this week that I had 23 years of my life that were devoted to getting ready to be tested or getting over a test. From 6 to 29 was a time of formal testing in between semesters and in between uh, programs. But 23 years of testing. I do not miss testing. I don't miss those kinds of tests. I know we've got our Sanford women's basketball team here. Sanford's coming to the end of their semester. Uh, Many of them will have finals. We've got UAB students, uh, Beeson Divinity School students are coming to finals. We've got high school students that are coming to the end of this semester. I love school, and many of you love school, many of you, but, but I don't miss testing. And it's one of those things that uh, some of you maybe don't grow out of, in the sense that uh, for work you have to have certification testing, for work you have continuing education, and there's a part of your work-life balance that you're always sort of have on the back of your mind, well, I've got to get that next credentialing to be able to get that next opportunity. I tell you this, I, I don't miss test. But, but there's a sense in which <clears throat> testing is not an elective in the Christian life. There's a sense in which that God has for us ordained a curriculum to shape us and to grow us and to mold us into his image. And a part of that core curriculum is the trials that he allows us to go through, which tests us and which stretches us. How do you go through the testing times of life? I mean, there's some of you in this room that whine through tests. There's some of you that wallow through tests. Nobody knows my pain. Nobody knows my sorrows. I heard of a small country church that had a share night, Sunday night. Everybody stood up and they recited, many from memory, some from the, their passage of, of, of God's Word or from their copy of God's Word, their favorite verse. So we had the 23rd Psalm that was eloquently read. We had 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that was read. And then there was kind of this grisly bear of the stalwart of the church that stood up, didn't bring his Bible with him. He stood before these people he grew up with, knew well. He said, my favorite verse is grin and bear it. (laughs) Grin and bear it. Some of you grin and bear it. Somebody told me at the end of the service, I don't whine through 
trials. I don't wallow through trials. I don't grin and bear it. I complain and share it. That's what I do. That's what I do with trials. I complain and share it. And all of us probably are tempted to that. I want to say this to my 11 o'clock crowd, and this is off to the side. I I preached a message last week, and I talked about different compartments in the sermon. And you listen to that sermon. I got 10 plates with compartments this last week. I know not everybody was listening to this. I know not everybody, but I was in the move. I had a brand new truck that I lost in the move. Kim, I mean, just, just, I mean, it didn't make, it didn't make the move. So just um, for what it's worth there. Okay. That's, um, Back to it here. I'm being tested, my ability to stay on track here. So James is our instructor. Verse 2 is where we start with the curriculum of testing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, James says. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In the New Testament, there are a lot of letters that are going out. Uh, James is unique. Paul Paul does this thing oftentimes in his letters where he introduces himself. He says, who am I talking to? And then there is a prayer of thanksgiving. Writes to the church at Philippi. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Oftentimes, there is this petitionary blessing, asking God's spiritual provision to be upon the people. James just skips all of that. There, there is, he's not, there's no icebreakers, no joke to warm up the crowd. He's not saying who drove the furthest here. None of that. He just gets right to the point here. And it really helps us because last week when we introduced the book of James, one of the things that I contend is the social context of James is that we have these Jewish Christians that have gone through persecution. They've been dispersed Over the Greco-Roman world, James is writing a circular letter, and it's not surprising that he gets to the very heart of it. Some of you are going through various trials. And you know what they said? They said, amen. Thanks for getting to it, because that's where I am right now. I'm going through trials. There are three truths about the nature of trials, and then there's one truth about our reception of trials that I want you to discover from your copy of God's Word. The first that I want you to discover is the inevitability of trials. Trials are inevitable in your life. Notice what James says. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, if you face trials of various kinds. No, there's no if there. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. His half-brother Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, John 16, verse 33. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Trials, at times, silently creep up in the back door of your life. Sometimes they they tiptoe, and they pick the lock. They don't knock politely, and also before you know it, they're ransacking the kitchen of your soul. Other times, trials come, and they don't knock, they don't ring the doorbell, they, they kick down the front door, and they ransack the living room of your soul. But you need to understand that trials are equal opportunity employers. Trials do not discriminate. They don't discriminate upon age, they don't discrimin- discriminate upon gender, they don't discriminate upon denomination or race or nationality. Socioeconomic uh, level, education level, trials are open to all, they are inclusive to all. Trials are inevitable in your life and in my life. Trials are also 
Well, there's a variety to them. There's a variety of trials. Notice in verse 1 or verse 2 of chapter 1 that, that James says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice that description there. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible called the message. He says, Consider it a sheer gift when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. So, so trials are tests. They're challenges in the New International Version, it says many kinds of trials. I'm preaching from the English Standard Version. It says various kinds. That word in the original language in the New Testament, it could be translated multicolored. Multicolored. So the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. It gets translated into the Greek. It's called the Septuagint. You go back to Genesis chapter 37. Jacob gives his son Joseph a coat of many colors. And that's the word for that coat when the Hebrew gets translated into the Greek. It's multicolors. You know, trials come with shades of blue. Trials uh, trials have yellow to them at times or a shade of red to them at times. They're they're trials that come with all the different uh, types of of colors that could come. How, How many colors do we have? How many shades do we have? What did Bob Ross have to work with on PBS? What, what, what's the extent of one's ability with, with the color palette that we have? Psychophysicists study the apprehension of light. They study the apprehension of colors. And they say that there are a thousand levels of light and dark. That there are a hundred levels of red and green. That there are a hundred yellow, uh, levels of yellow and blue. So that means in a single sitting, in the laboratory, how many colors could there be? There's, it's a thousand times a hundred times a hundred. That's ten million. But that's not the whole story. Because there are all of these other extraneous factors here. The answer is not quite that simple. What colors look like are greatly affected by the viewing condition. So these conditions include the color of the lighting, the amount of lighting, what time of the day it is. Is it early? Is it dark? Is it dusk? Is it dawn? The colors in the scene that are a part of it, colors also have different modes. So you see colors differently when you look at the different surfaces or the light sources or the volumes. And then different people, they see with slight variation colors in a different way. So how many people do we have? That's 7.5 billion people. So how many different shades of colors do you have? Well, you have to say 10 million colors times 10 million lighting types times 10 million lighting levels times 10 million surrounding colors times 7.5 billion people times three modes of viewing. And you know what you come up with? A really, really big number That's what you come up with. It's 18 followed by 33 zeros. James says... Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face multicolored trials. Trials come to the child of God in a lot of different colors that are distinct. And it very well may be that the loss of a puffy brings about a trial or the loss of a business. It very well may be that a blister on a big toe begins that trial or an aneurysm of the arteries. It very well may be a trial comes when your plans for tomorrow are postponed or your plans for the future are derailed. It very well may be that you find out about a trial when you go to the doctor's office and you hear the prognosis or you're sitting on the living room couch and you hear the confession. It very well may be a trial is sounded in the depths of a granddaughter's scream or it might be in the silence 
of a loved one's wake in a funeral home. Trials have a lot of different colors. Sometimes it's a shock to us. Sometimes it's a surprise. Sometimes we see it coming, like we see the mailman coming on Friday afternoon at 3 to deliver the mail. Trials have different colors. That's why I think we need to honor the distinctiveness of a person's trials. The longer that many of you have lived, maybe the less reticent you would, you would be to say, I know what you're going through. It sort of minimizes what a person's going through. Of course, the shoes are the similar fit. When many of you in this room have, have buried a mother or a father, there is a sense of commonality of that experience. But you also know that all of life brings you to that trial, and, and it brings you to a different place. And so even if you're wearing similar shoes, you're walking a different path. And so they're commonalities, but they're distinctiveness, and we need to honor the distinctiveness of trials that come because there are a variety of trials. There's the inevitability of trials, and, and finally, there's the experience of trials. We're just thinking about trials here. Trials don't come by themselves. Trials are bullies. They run in packs. Trials don't come to us. And it's sort of like the cliche. What is the cliche? When it rains, it does what? It pours. So oftentimes, a trial that comes your way of health might lead to a trial of wealth. It very well may be a trial that is a layoff at work will lead to an emotional trial or even a spiritual trial. Shakespeare says in Hamlet that when sorrows come, they come not as single spies, but they come in battalions. And trials gang up. They're not polite. They don't make reservations. No call-ahead seating. They come and they gang up on us. So, what's the reception of our trials? What does James tell us here? Are we to prevent the trials? Are we try to intercept the trials? Or are we trying to, to just live in such a way that trials never come our way? And I think it's important for us to be able to say this right now. There is a difference between consequences and trials. If you're here this morning and you're planning, and you're, you're planning to volitionally choose to hurt someone, you're planning here to sin against someone, there are consequences to that. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. It's not what I'm talking about. There's a difference between the consequence of our sinful actions and the trials that come not because of our sinful actions or our pure actions. Trials come to the righteous and the unrighteous. So I'm not saying here that trials will not come your way if you pray enough. You won't have trials. No. In actuality, trials might come your way in the midst of you praying. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing... And, he, and he's listing this, this litany of, of these events that have occurred. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's been left for dead. This wasn't a person that was running from God like Jonah. This is a person in the center of God's will. Understand that Jesus Christ was in the center of his will when he was nailed to a cruel, coarse Roman cross. So this is none of this name it, claim it. None of this stuff saying, if you had enough faith, you wouldn't have trials. No, tornadoes come. House fires come. Cancer comes. Car accidents come. Miscarriages, they, they come. And it's not because of your faithlessness. It's not because you didn't pray enough. It's because this 
is the life that we live. We do not live in the Garden of Eden. We live in a fallen world. And because of the fallen world, there will be trials that you experience and that I experience. And so we don't have to ask, why is this trial coming our way? Our question is, God, what do you have me to do in light of this trial? And this is what James says. He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. In the New International Version, it says, consider it pure joy. Boy, this is contrary to popular belief. This is not what you were thinking he was going to say here. Now, what does this not mean? It's very important for you to understand this. Trials are not events that we are called to enjoy. Did you hear me? James says, count it all joy. And he's not talking about how we feel. He is talking about how we think. We don't stand with our chest puffed out brazenly calling upon God to send down the rain. As Christians, we don't frolic to funerals. We're not gluttons for Greek. We're not for grief. We're not suckers for a sad story. We are called to count our trials as joy, understanding that joy is not a synonym for happiness. That you can have joy even in the midst of tears and grief. That joy is something deeper than happiness. Our, our happiness is dependent upon our happenings, but our joy is this settled contentment. It is a trust in God no matter our happenings, no matter our circumstances, knowing that whatever road he has taken us down, he's allowed us to travel, that he is good, he is God, he is sovereign, and he has a purpose and a plan even when we cannot see it. So James says, count it all joy in the midst of our trial that God can take the groans of your life and use it for his good and his glory. This is what he says. James says, I've got a secret. Get in close. I've got a secret. Your trials will be the testing of your faith, and that testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. A tested faith shows what is really present. Think about a craftsman. A craftsman will heat gold, and that heat that gold ore up in, in a way that the, he will be able or she will be able to skim off the dross of it and see his or her reflection in it. So God permits trials to come and heats our life in such a way that he skims off the dross of our life to be able to see the image of his son in your life and in my life. This is what Job was saying. Job said, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold, he says in Job 23.10. There are some aspects of our Christian growth that are means of grace that God uses to grow us and to stretch us. And, and the preaching of his word, he uses for that. The study of your Bible, he uses for that. When you go home and you pray, he grows you through that. When you, when you gather together to corporately worship him, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, remembering him, as we sing songs in praise as we bow our heads in prayer, as we serve in the church, serve outside of the church, as we meditate upon his word, as we fast, as we pray, as we have silence and solitude, all of these things God uses to stretch us and to grow us. But one essential aspect of our growth that shapes us and forms us and makes us depend upon him are trials. There's one thing to know in our head 
that he is all we need. But there's another thing to know in your heart when everything is removed that he is all I need. And there's something about trials here that you need to understand that God uses. He allows, us, he allows the trials of life to heat up our life so when that heat is applied, we're bent, but we're not broken. We're stretched, but we're not cracked. What's the purpose? Well, he tells us in verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I know what you're thinking. He uses trials to make me perfect. Well, I'm not perfect. Well, he's not talking about moral perfection. In the original language of the New Testament, perfect and complete, it means wholeness. You're well-rounded. That God uses the trials of life to grow you up into a well-rounded Christian that looks like him. And there's some aspects of your growth There's some places where he wants to grow you that he has to use the heat of trials to smooth out those rough edges, to make you look more like him. I heard a story of a teenage daughter, 17 years old. Her dad was a chef in the small town that they lived in. She was going through as much as a 17-year-old can go through, this sense of existential crisis. I mean, she just felt as if everything was falling around her and she had friends that were betraying her a long-standing relationship with a boyfriend that did not go well and her mom was out of town so she was left with her dad she's talking to her dad and she just said every time I turn around it just seems like one thing leads to another thing and I just can't get any relief and she says I'm just overwhelmed I'm tired of life I'm tired of struggling and as she's saying this Her dad goes and gets three pots, puts them on the eye, fills them with water, and brings them to a bowl. Never says anything. She continues to talk about this. And she says, Dad, are you listening to me? Every time I'm talking to you, you always ask me to talk to you more. And here I'm talking to you, and all you can do is cook. Doesn't say anything. Dad goes back to the refrigerator, pulls out of the refrigerator an egg, puts it in the pot, pulls out a carrot, puts it in the pot, and pulls out these ground coffee beans and puts it in the pot. And once again, she's just exasperated. Dad, will you talk to me? Do you hear me? And then he says, honey, come over here. Come over to the pots. What do you see? A carrot, an egg, and coffee. Thanks, Dad. No, 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 no. Come back. Come back. Look, look again. What do you see? What do you see? He said, honey, I got this carrot out, and I put the carrot in, and it was strong, and that carrot was unrelenting, and then when the heat was applied, it became soft and became weakened. Look again in this next pot here. What do you see? Do you see this egg? This egg, it was fragile. This egg could be broken if it was dropped, but but when I turned up the heat, it, it was hardened. Hardened. Look at the coffee beans. Honey, look, look, as these coffee beans were applied, it transformed the water. And those ground beans that were bitter to the taste, when the water came up around them, they became more pleasing to the taste than when they went in. And he looked at her, his daughter and said, when adversity knocks on your door, and sweetie, I hear that it's knocking on your door, which are you today? And you know how she answered that question? You know her answer? 
it really doesn't matter. What really matters is how you answer that question. You see, there's some of you in this room that God has allowed trials to come. And the heat's been applied. It's weakened you. It's weakened your faith. It's weakened your trust in the sovereignty of God. There's some of you in this room that he's allowed trials to come your way. And it's hardened you. You're bitter to his sovereignty. You're bitter to his goodness. And there's some of you in this room that you understand that God has allowed this trial and you would never in a million years say, I would want to go back and do it again. But you understand that he used it and he used it to make you into a fragrant aroma for his good and his glory. And you know that he didn't waste that trial. That you know that he doesn't waste your pain. That there's always a purpose that is sovereign behind the pain that you go through even right now. That he is so good and he is so great that he can take anything that you go through and work it together for his good. Trials are painful. They are. There's no doubt about that. But your pain always has a purpose. God uses it to form you. He uses it to shape you. He uses it to grow you more and more into his image. Child of the Most High God, he never wastes your trials. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for the person here today that is walking through a trial of life in their own strength. I pray for the person today that is saying, I'm going to grin and bear it. I pray that the trial of life that they're experiencing, whether that's an economic trial, whether that's a marital trial, whether that's a parenting trial, whether that's a prognosis that has brought about a trial, that these trials would point them back to you. I pray for the person today that has never trusted you as Lord and Savior. I pray in the midst of their trial, they would see that you and you alone are sufficient to guide them through the valleys of life. I pray today for the person that does not know you, that they would admit, I'm walking this trial in my own strength and that my sin has separated me from you, a holy God. I believe today that you sent your son. You sent your son to die upon the cross for me. He was raised on the third day to conquer death and anything that could come my way. I commit my life to you. I pray for the person today that has been weakened in their faith as a child of the Most High King because of the heat of life that's been applied. I pray for the person that's bitter today and hardened today about the trials of life that she has faced or he has faced. I pray that we would see that you desire to bring the heat in your sovereign purpose and your sovereign plan to refine us, to stretch us, to grow us into your image. May we consider it pure joy when we meet trials of various kinds 
For we know today that the testing of our faith, it produces steadfastness. And God, we are saying today, let your steadfastness have its full effect upon our church, upon our life, because we desire to be perfect and complete, well-rounded, lacking in nothing. Grant this in our lives. Give us the strength to feel your hand leading us, no matter where the trials of life take us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.